This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in The Times. I'm Matt Jolly. Before we begin, a reminder to subscribe to the podcast on Acast, iTunes and now on Spotify. It's particularly worth subscribing this week to make sure you don't miss a bonus episode. More on that later. But first to this week's episode, I'm joined by Joe Jervis, co-author of Spirit of Britain, Purpose of Labour, which calls for unity between the communitarians and the cosmopolitans. In the week of the death of Jeremy Hayward, who's the former Cabinet Secretary, Rachel Sylvester worries for the state of the civil surface. But first, Times columnist Hugo Rifkin on rich men in politics. An obsessive focus on Russia or on data obscures the real Aaron Banks story, which is about the vast power that vastly rich people today can have over our politics. Once, such people were constrained by having to suck up to politicians who may have secretly despised them. Today, they can do it for themselves, and I'm not sure that's good. So Hugo, your column in The Times this week is all on Aaron Banks, and it's an absolutely terrific demolition of the man, which I I thoroughly enjoyed, I have to say. (laughs) Just explain a bit, if people haven't been following every twist, where are we in the great Aaron Banks saga? So, his spending on the EU referendum has been investigated for a while now by the Electoral Commission. It's now been passed over to the National Crime Agency, who investigate more serious crimes, because of a suspicion that the £8 million he gave to Brexit's various campaigns, mainly but not exclusively Leave EU, was not in fact his, or at least did not come from admissible sources. Specifically, it seems to have come in some way from offshore, although he denies this, having formally not denied it, it's all a terrible mess. I wanted to talk about, even if the money is his, the fascinating thing about Aaron Banks is the phenomenon here. People people talk about, oh, maybe the money's come from Russia, maybe the money's come from other donors, maybe it's come, maybe it's come from, from offshore. Almost never mind all that. Yes, that's obviously important. These are important <laughs> stories. Think about the way that just what you can do if you're a man with lots of money to our politics. There was a time where if you were a rich person who wanted to influence politics, you had to donate money to a party. And, and the cabinet ministers or shadow cabinet ministers would pretend to like you while thinking you were basically an idiot with a fat wallet and would put up with you and you'd try and influence them with your ideas and they would despise you and ignore you and take your money and it was probably quite annoying. Aaron Banks hasn't had to do that. Aaron Banks has just launched his own funded campaign to help take Britain out of the European Union. And he's kept doing it thereafter by pushing his own pet anti-immigration views and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. And so I'm just interested in the way that what you can now do is you can just you can just buy a voice. 
You can just buy a voice, and he has done. You're right. What we've seen is he's basically kept that up since the referendum. Yeah. He's still using those leave.eu mailing lists and whatever. He was trying to get thousands of people to join the Tory party. Yeah, I mean, and it's it, it's it's incredibly new. I was trying to think of like parallels for him in the past. You had say you had uh, you had uh, James Goldsmith, yeah, the, with with his referendum but, party, which was a bit of a joke. But as a rich man back then, wishing to skew politics and not having a party you could buy, that was the only option. There's some lunatic who always takes out, used to always take out adverts in the Times, slagging off columns in the Times. He's that UKIP guy who wrote the book about why women shouldn't wear trousers. Oh you know, yes, pathetic, ridiculous. <laughs> you don't need to do that anymore. You can just you can go straight to you can go straight to social media and adverts, and you can just lobby the British people directly hard. To what extent do you think he has an influence, or because actually what we found when he tried to get thousands of people to join the Tory party, yeah. is that. I mean, even he stopped talking about it, which suggests it wasn't a success. But I mean, the Tories talked about it being maybe about a hundred people who followed the league yeah. campaign. Oh, I mean, is, is it is it a lot of noise and no impact, or do you think he does have an impact? I'm sure he has an impact. It might not be the impact he wants to have. You know, he. Um, <laughs> you look at Leave EU and the and the referendum particularly. Dominic Cummings from Vote Leave is very explicit. No, Leave EU was a, he says was a net drag. Might I mean he would say that, wouldn't he? He might be right. He might not be right. But what Leave EU certainly did. Was changed the changed the the nature of the debate, the terms of the debate, the tone of the debate, and introduced a strong tone of anti-immigration stuff. Directly targeted the BNP and Britain First to bring them on side, which I mentioned in the column. Um, and so, whether that is a an effect that actually leads to uh, a greater vote for what he wanted, it may very well not be. I mean, I also say in the column, he's actually not a very good campaigner. You know, he spent millions of pounds campaigning for this thing, and the upshot has been to radicalise the other side and land himself with a criminal investigation. You know, that's terrible. That's why you're better off if you suck up to a politician. And actually, he led to one of my favourite statements ever issued by someone, saying when he said, I welcome the National Crime Agency investigator. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody has ever said. Uh, Rachel, Hugo's right, though, isn't he? The, the p- political donors traditionally haven't been household now. I'm not suggesting that everybody in the country knows Aaron Banks is, but he's much better known probably than a lot of... partly because he's a very colourful figure and he sort of plays up to that, doesn't he, with the sort of... What's his number plate? MI5 spy. 007 or something, exactly. And, you know, he's got a Russian wife and he sort of plays into the whole story. Um, What I think is interesting is Leave.eu did definitely change the tone of the... Brexit campaign, didn't they? It was very, it wasn't just a dog whistle, it was a sort of dog klaxon, absolutely in your face, sort of xenophobia, racism, really, and trying to scare people into voting for Brexit. But what I think's in a way just as interesting is that the mainstream parties may not have wanted to do that because they were too polite at one level. That sort of very virulent tone did influence the mainstream debate as well. And you look at the influence of UKIP over the years you know they've hardly won any they haven't won a parliamentary seat they they had an mp who defected but in fact they changed the course of history because mm. they got david cameron the conservative prime minister to call a referendum so these sort of outsiders if you like do matter but only if they get adopted by the mainstream parties mm-hmm. sort of through the back door if you like so it may be that they're not having to go to the Tory party to fund the Tory party but they're still influencing it yeah. because they're influencing the tone of the debate and sort of public opinion that kind of thing what leave.eu managed to do and although vote leave might say well they nothing to do with us and if anything they had a, ne- a negative effect actually in a way they were slightly outsourcing the dirty work of stirring yeah. up immigration mm. attitudes 
Michael Gove now says it went too far, but he did make speeches warning that lots of Turkish criminals were going to come to the UK if we stayed in the EU. David Lammy put it very well. He said, if you lie down with the dogs, you catch fleas. And I think they did. They lied, They lay down with the dogs uh, and they caught the fleas. I mean, get away from Brexit. Brexit, <laughs> Brexit. Brexit is the example in which this has happened. A lot of what I've written lately has been about have been about the impact of, of social media on everything, and particularly on power and on where power lies. And that's what this is about. This is about where power has gone. There's one argument you can say, OK, so I'm complaining about politicians no longer being the gatekeepers to power. <laughs> and, and, and people used to say, look, that's great if politicians are the gatekeepers to power. It opens stuff up to democracy, it opens up to grassroots impact. How dare you say the elite should control everything? The point of this column, what concerns me, what I keep coming back to writing about this stuff, is you know what, when you smash away the old, the old gatekeepers, what happens is it's not the grassroots who get empowered. It's rich gits like Aaron Banks who get empowered because they can pour loads of money in and they can do what the grassroots would do far more effectively and with none of the constraints of reputation that you'd expect to get from a political party. And also none of the legal constraints. So the rules yeah. on campaigning on the internet virtually don't exist. There's, you can you can sort of pour money into those campaigns in a way you couldn't to an Absolutely. election campaign. Let's bring you in, Joe, because although the sort of the caricature is that UKIP, Aaron Banks, Leave.eu is all an impact on the Tory party, actually it had an effect on the Labour party as well. Labour have got to take some of the blame for this in not talking about the issues that UKIP talk about and, and they've obviously done well in some areas which of the population that, that should be supporting uh, Labour and they've and they've won over those votes and I think all of this could have been prevented if you like if Labour had spent more time over the last 10-15 years talking to those well, what I call in my book communitarian voters with those values of community cohesion and believing in a sense of kind of fair play and the rules and those kind of smaller knit tighter knit communities so that's part of the the answer I think but I think there's a question about the, the finance I think this is partly specific to referendums I think it's harder for people like banks to influence general elections because they have to go through the party process I think there is a question there about how much money each individual is able to donate I think there's a, a big worry there about the huge amounts of money coming from certain individuals like banks it, it is partly also about the um the fact that big personalities attract media attention, um, especially if they're controversial. He has managed to do that almost mm. as well as Nigel Farage while talking most of the time absolute bollocks about launching his own political party, launching his private radio station off Clacton. There's a whole list of things that Aaron Banks says he's going to do and it doesn't come to anything, but it gets a good, st- you know, it makes yeah. a good story. Somewhere. But see, this is, the, this is the, my sort of constant fascination with kind of these sort of very wealthy people who involve themselves in politics because you're just kind of like are you stupid you sound stupid <laughs> and yet you're so rich and in a way it's this this sort of this ridiculous bubble thinking that i must admit i'm completely susceptible to we all have this whether we studied it or not we all have ppe thinking in politics <laughs> and media and the things that we understand as being being wit and intelligence and then you have someone who sort of blusters in and sounds like a complete ass most of the time and is worth tens of millions and, and you just sort of lose comprehension as to how that kind of happened. In fact, in your column, I mean, there was loads of bits in your column which I liked, but my favourite line was where you, you, you did actually say there'd always been men like banks in our politics. George, Lloyd George sold peerages to them. There's a big influence because they already have everything else. And the end of the world of party politics with all the wisdom, grace and charm of Augustus Gloop entering a chocolate factory, <laughs> which I thought was absolutely uh, terrific. Not only because there's a sort of physical uh, similarity between Augustus Gloop and Aaron Banks I enjoyed. Um, do you think also part of the problem is because there are rules about regulations and who can donate and who can spend yeah. during different periods and all that, but he's not donating to a political party. Yeah. He's not even trying to further a political party's cause. He's just sort of 
setting fire to everything, well, the, stirring stuff up. The rules drawn up before the referendum in terms of funding and campaigning were, were terrible. Somebody really dropped the ball there. It didn't have to happen like that. The Scottish referendum rules were quite good. This one, they, would, they, were just, they just weren't. The issue we have is that political campaigning no longer really has to be about political campaigns. You know, there is literally nothing that prevents somebody from today spending millions, tens of millions on lobbying against against Brexit, for Brexit, against immigration, against against equal marriage, for equal anything like that. It's an absolute free for all. They, they, there's nothing that prevents people giving money. There's nothing that regulates who has given money. Only when we are actually in periods of campaign are there any rules at all. And even those are increasingly unenforceable. And if someone, not necessarily our banks, but if someone spent millions of pounds on a Facebook campaign calling for to bring back the death penalty, yeah, that's not in support of any mainstream political party. Sure. So it's completely outside any any regulation. It would probably spread quite quickly. Yeah. Uh, all polls always suggest that the public is more in favour of it than political parties are. Well, but and, and then what? But happens? that's always been the case, hasn't it? You could always put an advert on a bus saying, yeah. I remember there was one about ban gay marriage or something, or you could have bring back hanging. But because it was on a bus, it went to everybody. It somehow lost its power. Whereas well, what now they saw can it. do? But now they can. Everybody saw it. Now they can it. target it, and yeah. in a very dark way that isn't totally transparent and it's going very directly to um, susceptible people. But you can also campaign in a, in a sorry to go on but you can also campaign in a in a, in a negative way you could campaign mm. against Labour anti-Semitism which is not classified as a as a pro-conservative advert perhaps a bad idea because that's a, a real problem but um, but you can you can attack you can pay to attack and smear and it is just it's a free-for-all. Um, yeah I think the uh, I think part of the issue is we, it's very easy to look at it from a, a cosmopolitan, metropolitan elite kind of, not elite is maybe a bad word, but from kind of our kind of London-centric mm-hmm. position. And it's really worrying that Aaron Banks can do the stuff can, that he can put all this money into these some kind of illiberal-feeling campaigns. But I suppose we've also got to remember that a lot of money goes into liberal campaigns. So shouldn't need to say this, but I'm very pro-gay marriage. I suppose if you're banning a campaign which is against gay marriage or... or or you're not in, you're not liking the fact that so much money is spent on that campaign, then surely it's also a problem to spend um, that much money on the reverse campaign. If you write about Aaron Banks spending a lot of money in support of Brexit, you immediately get someone saying, well, "What about George Soros spending a lot of money on the the, the right?" I mean, the, yeah. the, and, and this is this is the problem. The, the problem of it being un, unregulated is that it it breeds this kind of dis, distrust and and suspicion. Personally. I don't care how much George, George Soros, how much money George Soros wants to give to promote liberal, uh, his liberal <laughs> policies. You know, the, the more, the better. But I, but I don't want people to be suspicious of it. I don't want people to think it's shadowy. I want them to be able to go and look it up and go, that money came from here, and this is why this advert is being pushed at me. And when you don't have that, you have suspicion and 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 chaotic breakdown and Augustus Gloop in a chocolate factory. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's um, let's leave it there on that um, excellent mental image. As we touched on it there, though, let's now go to Joe Jervis, co-author of Spirit of Britain purpose of Labour. It is fashionable to blame Trump's presidency and Brexit for sowing the seeds of division, but in reality each has only served to expose the enormous values chasm between two emerging tribes that is threatening social stability. In one corner are the cosmopolitans who are often younger, mobile, urban, highly skilled and tend to care deeply about issues of human rights and individual liberty, and in the other the communitarians who are often older, non-graduates living outside the major cities and tend to place extra value on cohesive, close-knit communities. The EU referendum was the communitarians' opportunity to strike back at the cosmopolitan elite that wasn't listening. They took it. It was then the cosmopolitan's opportunity to start listening. 
So Joe, you and uh, Stephen Kinnock, who co-edited this book with, wrote, wrote a piece on this for Red Box last week, and I just thought it was really interesting because it was one of the more accurate ways of sort of to try to divide up this you know great divided nation that we live in uh, these days. And and the the, the division. Quite often when people have tried to do it before, one is quite clearly the baddies uh, and the other yeah, one are the nice absolutely. people like us. Uh, and that's the, you know, and that's always been the flaw in it. But ju- just sort of expand a bit on on the, particularly the communitarians and, and what it is that they believe in and why it was that Brexit appealed to them. So the communitarians are more numerous than the cosmopolitans, but far less influential. They're not illiberal, as cosmopolitans like to claim. So they often support gay rights, equal pay campaigns, anti-racism legislation. But they do also value cohesive communities, stability, security, um, self-reliance and personal responsibility, a level playing field, playing by the rules. They often live close to their hometowns and have a a kind of strong sense of local and national identity in some cases. Um, Many are working class, but many are also middle class. And I suppose the key thing is over the last 40 years, many communitarians have watched on as deindustrialisation has destroyed local industries. Um, a communitarians more like to define themselves against cosmopolitans then, while cosmopolitans just ignore the fact yeah, that Yeah, I'm, sure I'm not sure it's a conscious thing. You know, people are walking around thinking I'm a communitarian. <laughs> but, uh, but I think it's that, you're right, it's defining against the world as we know it at the moment, which is essentially ruled by a by the cosmopolitans um and we've seen all sorts of trends over the past 40 years which have gone against kind of communitarian values i suppose so the fact that a combination of uh, laissez-faire government globalization and new technology combining to, to rip up high streets and pull good jobs away to london the southeast and the services sector away from manufacturing we, they, we've seen communitarian concerns about immigration and a more fragmented society dismissed as racist and bigoted a university degree has become the be-all and end-all for many careers. Um, liberal left politicians only really speak to, to underrepresented groups a lot of the time, and worse still, when they do that, they miss out the working class. And then if you add in Tory austerity, that's compounded all these problems. And I'm not that surprised that the Brexit vote went the way it did. It was the opportunity for communitarians to strike back. And you sort of saw that when you had Michael Gove saying we've had enough of experts. It was sort of trying mm. to tap into that sense of yeah. I've had a lot mm. enough of all that lot in London telling me what to do. And yeah. we were discussing just before we started recording. I think you're the first time I've had somebody from Taunton on. Yeah. Uh, this, two <laughs> No, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we've had plenty of other people from the Times who all went to the same Oxbridge College, but there were two <laughs> people from Taunton. Everything that you describe about communitarians is exactly my experience of growing up in Somerset mm. and family and friends who still live there and do have this slight view of me in the that up there London yeah. thing. <laughs> so what should political parties do about this? We've taken this from the, the Labour angle. I mean, I think cosmopolitans as, as a whole need to kind of ask themselves some questions about whether they, whether they really get what happened with Brexit. And I'm afraid, I, I do think the People's Vote campaign... Um, respect to people who, who, who went on the march. My mum went on the march, I've got to say that. I've got to say that I respect that, that position. But ultimately, I'm worried that it'll, it's polarising Britain further rather than asking the difficult questions. Looking at it from a Labour point of view, what can Labour do? Well, in the book, we set out some kind of, well, what we call a few seismic shifts. So this is about intellectually challenging ourselves rather than policy. So, for instance, are we, are we ready to start celebrating the common bonds that bind people together rather than solely celebrating the differences I think that's a key part of creating a harmonious, diverse society. There's another example. Is social mobility enough? Is dragging young people off to university from towns like Taunton enough when you're leaving kind of entire towns behind and with lack of investment 
brain drain, all that kind of thing. So there's some fundamental questions. There's a question about immigration, patriotism that we, we lay out in the book and really challenging the left to change it, its view on this because, after all, the left should be representing those, cosmo- those communitarian voters who are often at the sharp end of the job market. That was the very point of the Labour Party to start with. Hugo. Firstly... I'm the only person at the Times who went to my particular Oxbridge college, so I, so I, so I resent that. Does that, um, does that mean it was a really good one or a really bad one? Just, just, they just did other things. Um, but secondly, um, I don't wish to be unfair. I've not, I've, not, I've not read the book. I'm thinking about where I live. You know, I live in the absolute heart of Remain. I live in North London. I live in Crouch End. I wouldn't say everyone there voted Remain, but, you know, 80, 90% of people. And I think about my um, my kids' school, where you've got you know, I mean, something insane. Like in their class, like thirty percent of people are bilingual because they've got parents that come from different parts of the EU. But they're all professionals and stuff. I don't understand in what sense that place, that group, my community is not communitarian. I have a community that's based around a school. I walk down the street and I see, and I bump into people I know because everyone lives around there. My kids play with people who live short numbers of streets away. We support and value our high streets. We shop in our high street to preserve our high street. And yet this is absolute cosmopolitan remain kind of thing. And and I don't just want to sort of talk about myself. When you look at who cosmopolitans are across Britain, it's particularly these kind of sort of like young graduates. What they are doing is they are building communities, often thanks to catchment area manipulation, but still <laughs> they're building communities in the in the in the urban centres of Britain. And I, I just don't see why that's so different from even the village I grew up in. Maybe it's because I'm, I'm not quite settled down yet in a, in a specific part of uh, London. Being someone who grew up in, in Somerset and then spent spent their twenties in London, I think it feels very different. Like a lot of us don't know our neighbours. Um, it might be different but, if you've got kids at a local school, and, and as you get older, that might change. I'm not saying there's no communitarianism. But, 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 Maybe that's just a description of being in your 20s. Yeah, but is it a description of being in your 20s in a, in a small town? I think communitarianism does exist in London in, in certain communities and in certain instances. I'm not, it's not like it only exists in certain mm. places. This is a model, right? This yeah, is a sure. spectrum yeah. and a model. Mm. So we're not trying to say that there are no such things as, as cosmopolitan non-graduates or anything like that. Mm. It's, it's a model. So I think you're right, it does exist in the cities, but I think there's more isolationism don't have that sense of community spirit. And I suppose the community you're describing is mobile, young, highly skilled, mm. international, yeah. which is yeah. a different sort of community to a long-established people don't leave. Yeah, but, 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 I mean, but I mean, you know, cosmopolitans, cosmopolitanism is community because i mean it is it, you know it's not like you get these people in the cities who go i'm here and i'm an island and screw everybody else you know what it's all about is if you are a devoted multiculturalist every bit of that is about community what, so i mean again i, I don't mean i don't wish, wish to disagree because i i I've, no, I've very good. Good. otherwise, otherwise disagree, we get so, accused of everybody coming on yeah. the podcast and agree <laughs> Rachel, disagree why, with them both. Um, no i think that's why Theresa may's citizens of nowhere comment was so controversial because actually a lot of people who travel for work or voted remain mm. aren't citizens of nowhere they they would see themselves as open to the world that's very different to being i've got a, a milkman citizen for of god's nowhere. sake yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is the most yeah. cosmopolitan <laughs> thing in the world <laughs> everyone um, else goes to asda and buys milk but i think what's interesting maybe about this i wonder whether the distinction is slightly different i wonder whether it's a generational thing as much as a regional thing because actually if you look at the polling Younger people in every single part of the country, rural, urban, under your geographical categories, all the young people are more on the cosmopolitan Mm -hmm. side and all the older people are more on the communitarian side. Um, So do you think there's a chance that the the sort of communitarian 
view of the world is a sort of fading one and that the that it's dangerous for the parties to chase after that sort of aging population and actually the the young people tend to be as partly they're um, more likely to be graduates that is a factor education is a huge aspect of this but i don't think necessarily it's a ge- regional thing i mean if you look at the trends people in the big cities uh voted remain they're more likely to be um younger more likely to be graduates in the small towns so, I mean, I think it's all of those things. I think it's definitely age, it's definitely education, it's definitely place, it's defi- I think it's wealth as well. I think it's more, actually, that as people get older, that they actually become more communitarian. No, I they, think that's what's really interesting. I don't think, that's, don't think that's right. True. I think that it's more they that... they settle down with kids and... Well, and uh, that, but obviously you have a, you're more likely to have a milkman if you've settled down with kids, perhaps. But it's... Um, <laughs> and it's, you live in the 1950s. I don't think it's these... possible <laughs> milkman wasn't that important, in that respect. These, um, but I think the values of that you're talking about as cosmopolitan are values that you don't change as you get older. So I think from the... Think about it from the Tory party's point of view. As you get older, you're more likely probably to want to pay less tax. You're perhaps more interested in things like social care. I don't think that's true of values. I think you're equally... People who are now in favour of gay marriage or pro-immigration or pro-Europe even as they get older, I don't think that's going to change because I think it's much more to do with the generation in which you grew up. People grew up with the, you know, the iPhone, EasyJet. It's a cultural thing rather than a political thing. And so in terms of how political parties approach it, Joe, isn't the Labour Party right to sort of pivot towards the young cosmopolitan voters because they're going to be around? The Tory party is in danger of appealing to... Older Brexiteers who bluntly, I mean, even the Tory MPs will say this, they're yeah. dying and they're, they're not going to be around forever. Well, if, if you agree with that analysis, I mean, uh, that Rachel's put out there, then, then maybe, but I, I don't particularly, I'm not saying that people. Do you think people who complete... are twenty in their 20s now are going to become more anti gay marriage? No, that's, but that's years. not what communitarianism is all about. I don't think communi- most communitarians oh. are anti gay marriage. I think communitarians want stability, they want low crime rates in their area, they, want, they, they don't necessarily want mass economic upheaval and I think once you've bought a house and you've got kids you know settled in an area then you're more likely to kind of move to into that field it's not it's not saying that that it reverses and you become anti-gay marriage or anything like that it's it's about that what you prioritize when you're looking at political parties and I think that Labour would be, would be wrong to completely I think they're very uh, sorry very cosmopolitan at the moment I think the 2017 election showed that they won seat we won seats in Kentington and Chelsea, um, and we lost in North East Derbyshire, Mansfield, Middlesbrough, and there was a real trend. We went backwards in a lot of old kind of communitarian working class areas. So I think uh, we'd be wrong to completely shift into a, a communitarian position which alienated a load of cosmopolitan younger voters because there is a trend in that direction, like you say, but I think we can't win an election unless we appeal to those communitarian values. And actually, isn't it, it's, it's not about people going backwards on mm. things like gay marriage, but sometimes if the Westminster Bowl is obsessing about gay marriage, as it seemed to be, you know, five or ten years ago, people say, well, that's, that's not, I don't understand what that's all about. It's not, that's not for me. I'm not in favour of it. It's not. And then it happens and it's all fine. It doesn't have any, you know, mm. so people wouldn't say, well, I want to reverse it, but it was just, sometimes it felt like that conversation was the conversation that was happening in politics was not one it was addressing your it's a, it's a daily question concerns. of priorities yeah, does a political exactly. party want to talk to the majority and talk about issues which unite people or do they want to talk 
to specific issues which only affect a certain group. Well, it's interesting. I mean, we've certainly got us uh, debating. Uh, tell us what you think. Email us redboxthetimes.co.uk or find us on Twitter or Facebook. So in a moment, we'll be talking about what's happening in the civil service. But first, details of that special episode coming up later this week. From being sacked by Margaret Thatcher to creating Francis Urquhart in House of Cards, then to Frank Underwood in the US remake and the sacking of its star, Kevin Spacey. In a special episode of the Red Box podcast, I speak to Michael Dobbs about the downfall of Prime Ministers, the Me Too storm sweeping through Westminster and Hollywood, and how he dreamt up House of Cards. I sat down beside a swimming pool with that bottle of wine. Now, actually, what happened is that I should have been going through therapy. I had been through a really, really tough time. But instead I sat down with my pad and my pencil, I finished the bottle of wine, and all I had on that pad were two initials. I had scratched F-U. F-U became Francis Urquhart. Uh, F-U became his character. And all of a sudden I found myself writing a book called House of Cards. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back. You're listening to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley and this is Rachel Sylvester. Jeremy Hayward personified what's best about the civil service. The former cabinet secretary worked for four prime ministers and was respected by all of them across party lines for his intelligence and his impartiality. His death from cancer at the weekend comes at a time of unprecedented pressure on Whitehall, though, with Home Office officials accused of failing Amber Rudd over Windrush and Brexiteers accusing officials of trying to scupper Brexit. Has Hayward's successor, Sir Mark Sedwell, got what it takes? Sort of refreshing and, and heartwarming over the weekend, Rachel, seeing the sort of across-the-board um, tributes to Jeremy Hayward, a man who at times got a lot of stick from various quarters for... Uh, what was happening in government and quite often it was people who felt they couldn't criticise the incumbent in number 10 and instead criticises the officials because they can't defend themselves Yeah. but it also I was really struck reading the Times obituary just what a remarkable career I mean he was sadly only 56 when he died but just what a remarkable career he'd had he was in the Treasury on Black Wednesday he, he'd he worked for Tony Blair and then Gordon Brown and then David Cameron the coalition was formed and was you know still there with Theresa May and to manage to get all those people to trust him is pretty 
particularly extraordinary, I think. Um, I spoke to one former cabinet secretary over the weekend who said, you know, he just had this extraordinary knack of being in the right place at the right time. So to be there on Black Wednesday, 9-11, you know, coalition formation and then the EU referendum. And then he took each with a very sort of rational and objective eye. I remember talking to him um, soon after Theresa May took over as Prime Minister and he's, I said, how is she different to all the others? And he used the word orderliness about her number 10, which somehow conveyed simultaneously a slight contrast with the kind of sofa government of Blair or the matocracy of Cameron or the chair throwing and mobile phone throwing <laughs> of Gordon Brown. But it was never stated, of course. And then, but also... Looking back, I sort of thought, actually, is there in that too a sense of she doesn't get take decisions? It's all about, you know, the P- cabinet meetings process. have been held in yeah, process. Yeah. And to capture that in one single word, maybe I'm reading too much into <laughs> it, but I think everyone said he had a kind of ability. He worked very fast. He worked very efficiently and he could summarise things incredibly succinctly and work out what the problem was. And then it was up to the politicians to try and solve it, which they weren't always able to do. But he could give them the kind of very quick and and sort of diagnosis. It is sort of incredible job being cabinet secretary because you are right in the room. You are next to the prime minister, not just during cabinet, but through, through meetings throughout the day with so much going on around you, but not having any view politically on what is the right thing to do, unlike basically anyone else in Westminster, whether yeah. it's journalists or politicians or think tanks or whatever else. But often more powerful than anyone else sitting around the cabinet table, apart from probably the Prime Minister and the Chancellor. And I think he, the Cabinet Secretary is very influential and they can, they can often hold the ring between different ministers. In the Blair Brown days, it was Jeremy Hayward who had to be the go-between between, the, you know, the TBGBs and try and soothe calm relations or in the coalition it was between the Lib Dems and the Tories so you're often the kind of broker um, between these different factions what I think is interesting though is now the civil set all these questions are being raised so I, I talked to senior conservatives and they are frustrated about what they see as the incompetence of some departments in the home office being the prime example recently um, but also others but there's then this kind of politically motivated attacks starting up on the civil service over Brexit. It was slightly extraordinary that Mark Sedwell felt he had to write to the Times to defend the honour of Ollie Robbins against Brexiteer attacks. You know, Nigel Farage called the civil service, what was it, the enemy within trying to sabotage Brexit. Jacob Rees-Mogg has used similar language about the Treasury. And I think they're just sort of scapegoating because they haven't got the answers. They haven't managed (laughs) to sort this thing out. Why haven't you sorted out our best? And they need someone to blame. And, And, you know, if it's not all the sort of glorious unicorn paradise that they promised then it must be the civil servants fault because they scuppered it and I don't think um, it isn't Mm. there was a brilliant quote that um, Peter Hennessy told me about that from Sir Robert Van Van Sittard who's a 1930s diplomat he said the soul of our service is the loyalty with which we execute ordained error (laughs) Peter Hennessy said that's how the civil servants see themselves you know they may think these politicians have made a total mess of what the decision is or in this case they might think the British people got it wrong on Brexit but they will do their utmost to deliver this ordained error uh, in the way that they think is is best Hugo it's pretty extraordinary that Mark said well letter to the Times yeah Uh, do you think we'll see more of that now he has officially taken Mm. over because he was only acting cabinet secretary when he did that but to write a letter to the Times basically telling Tory MPs to call off the dogs attacking Ollie Robbins the PM's negotiator look this this might I was thinking about this this might sound a bit bizarre but it's a bit like when I do comedy on the radio right you get a lot of complaints from people going, why aren't there more right-wing comedians on the radio? Tell some right-wing jokes for a change. And it always annoys me, because it's like, well, 
you do one. You make up a right <laughs> joke. It's actually, and, and it's this idea that what you do is you just complain about the people who are doing the job because they're not doing it to your liking. And political attacks on the civil service are always like that. They're like, no, well, we've decided to do Brexit, so do it better. And it's like, well, no, you do it better. You tell us what to do and we'll do it. And, I mean, um, in this case, they did have the chance. They were in the cabinet, David yeah, Davis and Boris Johnson. Abner- they didn't manage to... Absolutely. There's this, you know, there's this, there's this strict traditional tradition, which is the, it's the, it's the bedrock of, of our politics. That you have the point of politicians is to suggest policies and make decisions, and the point of civil servants is to do the work. That's it, really. And and and, and when you politicise the civil servant, you, you you break all that, and it's particularly dangerous and damaging to break all that when you've no idea how you do the work yourself. And, and <laughs> alternatively, and to extend your your radio comedy metaphor further did I mean, it work are we part, sure yeah, no, no, part, part, <laughs> part of the reason why yeah. there were loads of jokes about the tories on the radio yeah. is because the tories are in government yeah and you know if people are unhappy with what the civil service are doing it's because well the tories are telling them what to do it's, it's, well, it's, it's the, you look at the brexit impact reports and the fact that you've got like brexiteers angry about the brexit impact reports and it's like they did what you were told they were told to do they said t- tell us what's going to happen if we do these, these various things here <laughs> how dare you you know you haven't it's, said it's, it's all going to be fine yeah, yeah it's, it's maddening yeah, when, when you're a politician and, you, and people stop ridiculing you, that's a time to worry. Isn't it? <laughs> it's no longer relevant. And the same with the, with the government it means that people are just right. That's that's it. That, that, you know, they're done. On the Ollie Robbins issue, I mean, you know, thank God someone that competent is there because the, mm. the vacuum of political leadership means that the civil service has essentially got to do more work to, to help us out of this mess. Um, so uh, I think. Yeah, we, we're in a bit of a, a crisis at the moment, aren't we, with a lack of trust in institutions, including the civil service, and it's uh, it's a bit of a pattern, really, um, here and in the states as well. Um, but it is po- it is possible to think that the civil service is a good thing for you know when they do their job well. But as Rachel touched on, what happened in the Home Office? Mm. The report that came about Amber Rudd was outrageous. Amber Rudd went into a select committee hearing, said, do we have targets? Her officials said no, when what they meant was yes. Mm. So she goes in (laughs) and tells the select committee there are no targets. And, and then, then has, has to, to resign, resign. Yeah. because of it. Yeah. But that's a competence thing. That isn't a political Precisely. bias. It's yeah. not the civil mm. service trying to stop. I mean, well, I mean, I mean yeah. she, she went further than that. In an interview at the end of last week, she said in her last year at the Home Office, there were repeated stories leaked designed to embarrass her. And she saw this as part of a pattern that, that she'd... But uh, I think that error surely must have been, wouldn't have been deliberate. Well, well I don't know, because don't I think know. because it mm. came in the heat of the Windrush... And she, I think a few days before, made a statement to the House or made a speech somewhere where she, she basically tried to pin the blame on the civil service. I think actually in part because the alternative was pinning the blame on her predecessor, who was, of yeah. course, uh, Theresa May. I mean, even, even if they were trying to undermine her, that's, not, that's obviously not good, <laughs> but it's also not quite political. It's not like they were trying to undermine her because they were to her left or to her right. Presumably they were trying to undermine her because they hated her. Yeah. <laughs> Which, again, it's, it's, not, it's not a great situation, but it's also not quite the same thing. Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. If it was because she, she was blaming them for something they wanted to sort of, you know, that is different to we don't like the Tories. I mean, the, the, the pushback that Michael Gove got from the educational establishment, for example, is a, is a much better example of that. Although he yeah. didn't quite seem to be getting it from the Department of Education. Didn't quite seem to be getting it from the civil servants. Well, I think but, actually because he was doing stuff. He was... Yeah. So if you're a civil servant who goes into that because you want to reform and think things through and do new things, yeah, old-fashioned civil servants as well. Sure, Joe, you mentioned the American model, where I mean, Donald Trump famously arrived in the White House and was quite surprised to find that all the start there were no there was nobody there, (laughs) and he in America he had to appoint everyone politically. Mm. Do we think that's a better model? Um, No, I think that's a much worse model um, when you can get a guy with you know his amount of money and influence and just 
you know, run the type of camp, Aaron Banks style campaign mm. that he ran, um, get into power and then appoint whoever you like. I think that's dangerous. Um, so I much prefer our system to that system. Yeah, it's a bit of a mess on both sides of the Atlantic. But uh, the only thing I do think is reasons. that the politicians should take responsibility ultimately. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones who can get voted in or out. And so on, I think we're going to see the danger is if Brexit happens or doesn't happen and is a mess or is a sort of, you know, there's another vote or whatever goes on. And then the Brexiteers pin the blame for that on the civil servants. I think that would be completely wrong and unfair because I think it's the politicians' mm-hmm. responsibility to sort it out and to make a decision. I mean, the fact they haven't even got a negotiating position. Mm. I spoke to one um, former cabinet secretary who said, um, you know, how are you supposed to negotiate if you're Ollie Robbins and you haven't actually got a negotiating position? Agreed. How can he possibly be blamed for that? Yes, absolutely right. And I'm sure we will turn to this because we, we keep being told that a deal is going to be done any minute. It's like a taxi. It's just coming around the end of, the, <laughs> just coming around the end of your road now. We'll be with you uh, any minute. And so I'm sure we'll talk and about that. And there'll be three at once before you know. <laughs> Oh, if only. Just get all the deals out of the way and we can never talk about it again. Um, I'm sure we'll return to that in future weeks, but I'm afraid we've run out of time now. Um, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get them from. Sign up to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. But for now, from Hugo Rifkin, Rachel Sylvester, Joe Jervis and me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.